Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week is the writer and comedian David Baddiel. I had wanted to talk to David about his role as a Jewish activist, both via his social media presence and also his really brilliant book, Jews Don't Count. I was also very interested in the bravery of his confessional writing and stand-up comedy, which we discussed. And David told me about the fact he doesn't really see confessional writing as an act of bravery, but that there is real bravery in doing stand-up, since the shame of a bad gig, when it happens, is as horrible as wearing a wet blanket. I really enjoyed talking to David about shame. His perspective on it fascinated me, and how he sees combating shame as a real act of bravery. He also talked to me about his fear of frogs. David Baddiel, it's um, it's really lovely to be here in your office in London and I've been completely consumed by your books in the last few days. I've been reading um, Jews Don't Count and The God Desire and I've found them so satisfying and so interesting to read. Thank and the you. more I sort of looked into your work and your life, the more surprised I was to find... I felt that there were quite a lot of similarities between us um, and we'd experienced quite similar things. We are both preoccupied by the idea of identity and truth. We have both felt a need to create careers which have involved a very, very high degree of sort of self-confession, I suppose, despite uh, both being married to very, very private people. Mm. We both uh, have daughters called Dolly. Yeah, who we I really noticed love. that just now on your uh, <laughs> on necklace. Neck. Yes, yeah, got you've got Dolly Evangeline is the other one. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, well done for having a daughter called Dolly. <laughs> And uh, when I was looking at your Instagram, I could see that you were, you know, you really, really love cats. I wanted to bring a present for you as oh. well. And I'm moving Is to America. In, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm moving to America in three weeks' time. And I'm looking for a home for my three big ginger so cats. So you're moving, you're emigrating. I'm not emigrating. I'm just moving there for a couple of years with oh, three wow. of the children wow. for my husband's work to Washington. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, that's a big deal. But I was, So I did consider bringing three cats as a present for you. Um, you... Yeah, I mean, I'd have loved that, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I, I have this sort of emotional sense that no amount of cats is ever enough. But practically, well, I've got four. And seven, <laughs> Do you want another three? Seven, seven is probably too much. Yeah. Can we sort of start by talking about what does bravery really mean to you? This is a podcast about, yeah. about bravery and the way it changes us and affects our lives. What does it mean yeah. to you? Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the reasons why I did this is that people do, people who don't hate me, of which there are some, and that's part and parcel of, I guess, what I'm about to say. Um, but people who don't hate me uh, often tell me that I am brave, certainly as regards... The Jews don't count, of and Jewish activism, such uh, I don't really like the word activism, but you know, I guess that's mm. what it is. The consciousness raising about anti-Semitism that I've done. And I guess that was one, one reason I wanted to do this, because I don't think of it as brave. Uh, what I think of it as, and you've used the word already, uh, I think is honesty, or at least as honest, uh, as to do with truth. And at heart, that is my you know guiding principle uh, my guiding principle is very at some level <laughs> amoral i mean some people might not think so but i think it is i'm not interested i'm much more interested in being true than i am in being good um mm -hmm. uh, for me you know i'm only comfortable in possibly a slightly on the spectrum way with being absolutely true to whoever i am whatever i am uh, all the time uh, and that involves 
a weirdly unfiltered way of expressing myself. I have the advantage. I am quite articulate. So therefore, as I speak, like I'm doing now, mm -hmm. I'm not processing what I'm saying at all. I'm just assuming it's going to come out mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense and is accurate in terms of how I want to be. So as regards, say, as an example... Jews don't count. I was asked to write an essay book by the TLS, uh, and it could be about anything I like. And instantly I thought, well, I want to write about what I see as the downgrading of anti-Semitism and Jews in terms of like their understanding of Jew Jewish Jews as a minority, uh, Jewish inclusion, Jewish representation, all the, all the stuff that happens as regards mm. other minorities in the last sort of 10, 15 years, that that's not happening to Jews, and Jews are low in the mix of that conversation. And it didn't really occur to me, and this is the point about bravery, it didn't really occur to me oh, that will create a lot of trouble and I need to have bravery or courage to get through that because of the unfiltered thing. Mm. I assume, and this might be a limited idea of what bravery is, but I sort of assume that bravery is a calculation, that bravery is like you think, like, oh, this is going to be dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm brave or whatever, but not because I'm brave. no one thinks like that, but you know what I mean? They have might consider the dangers and then do something anyway because they're brave. And I don't know if I have that. I think that my I am impelled towards being honest about whatever I think is important or that I have to speak and that I feel some urgency about it. And I don't much stop to think about what trouble is this going to cause me. Now, obviously, I'm aware that it does cause trouble. I don't particularly want trouble. I don't particularly want people trolling me on the internet or else they're going to do. But I don't... It won't stop me because of this sort of, yeah, as I say, kind of urgent need that is really part of who I am and feels to me like something I can't quite contain mm. rather than something that is like, I want a medal for. Yeah, sure. So it's something that has to be said. It's, yeah. You're compelled to say it. Yeah. And by the way, that is not always an important issue like anti-Semitism. That yeah. is how I am all the time. Yeah. Uh, and some of the stuff that I feel impelled to say is incredibly small and trivial. And just is, you know, people going about speaking my truth. Like that is a sort of brave thing to do. So mm. for me, it's not because I have to do it. And also that the truth I want to speak is not always important. Right. Uh, right? <laughs> it's all just like how I am all the time. And apart from getting into rows on Twitter, what kind of, you know, you've referred to it getting you into trouble. What kind of trouble does it get you into to talk in that way? Well, I get, you know, beyond that, I get death threats and I get, you know, uh, occasionally I do get people trying to talk to me on the street. Uh, you know, by the way, most of which is really nice. Most of which is Jewish people or indeed not Jewish people come up to tell me how much that book has meant to them or whatever. But I also get, you know, people being aggressive in real life. When I do events occasionally, there, there are people there who really want to sort of take it down and have got like axes to grind mm. about it. I, one of the things about anti-Semitism specifically is that speaking out about anti-Semitism and calling out anti-Semitism does seem to create an anger in the people who don't want to hear that that is beyond standard examples of someone of a minorities trying to say, oh, I think this isn't quite right. And that's part and parcel of anti-Semitism is because mm. there's an assumption that Jews are powerful and privileged and white and comfortable that therefore a Jew saying, okay, I feel vulnerable, which is essentially what Jews don't count is trying to allow, uh, is seen as sort of like unnecessary and privileged and whining and and it therefore it leads to more anger, I would say. Not that other minorities don't also suffer that, but it does lead to a specific kind of who are you? To complain you're so fine uh, that rage and the book is also full of really really interesting and kind of very very troubling examples of the many many different ways that anti-semitism pervades many elements of life can you give me some of the examples of that 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's many, many examples of it. The most extreme version, uh, I think, that makes people kind of who don't know about it quite surprised is that the use of the word, what I call the Y word, but I'll say here for anyone who doesn't understand the word, use of the word yid in football matches on the terraces of football, like for years and years and years. Uh, and I'm a Chelsea fan. The That was just a thing that was chanted and, and still is chanted, supposedly at Tottenham fans because of this appropriation of a Jewish hate word by mainly non-Jews, that is the Tottenham fans, thus creating a false identity that they're a Jewish club, which led to unbelievable anti-Semitic chants from Chelsea and Arsenal and Millwall. And sometimes that's, I think, you know, like when people talk to me, as they do with this sort of implication that Jews are fine, Jews don't have any issues really, and blah, blah, blah. I think, well, I've had 10,000 people chant a hate word at me, chant the word yid at me, uh, at Chelsea. I've had a bloke at Chelsea, as the book relates, shout, fuck the Jews, fuck the Jews, mm. and... In 2008, at a time when, you know, it's written in the programme that any racist abuse will lead to someone being banned, no steward doing anything. It's a kind of unbelievable level of racist abuse. But the point about it is not really it's unbelievable level. It's how it's not heard, how nothing is done, how people are not instantly outraged or don't really understand that it's racist. And there's lots of things like that. I don't really want to say what it is just now because I'm in conversation. And one of the things about my life, which is weird, is I'm now a kind of lightning rod for, for this for anti-Semitism, but also specifically for what I would call Jews don't countness. The other day, uh, someone got in touch with me on Twitter and told me that there's a movie on Netflix, which is a big anti-establishment movie, a big sort of for the people movie, and just in the middle of it, or quite early on in it, there's a reference to a, to a firm of lawyers, uh, just glancingly a firm of lawyers, and they're called Elliot Grossman Stein. Right? And they're clearly quite an unscrupulous firm of lawyers, and it's just mentioned as being involved in this thing and then gone. And they said, this Jewish person, they couldn't watch the rest mm. of the movie. because this, And that is true, that you get a lot of this, and this is what Jews Don't Count is about. It's often not about a very extreme forms of anti-Semitism. It's about small little assumptions that are made about Jews that wouldn't be made about other minorities. And I see that a lot, actually. The corporate naming in fiction of, say, a finance firm will often be, oh, we'll just reach for a Jewish name. Mm. So if you are Jewish, you are basically subject to continual microaggressions, which you're essentially not really allowed to talk about. Yeah, that's that's probably right in terms of what I think the book is about. Although, you know, to be more positive, the book has shifted the dial a little bit mm. on that. And I definitely, you know, <laughs> to some extent, just the title, uh, like I see all the time when these things happen now, people put hashtag Jews don't count and whatever. And I remember this and I was pleased with this, a guy writing to me on social media who wasn't Jewish, but defined himself as a progressive and said, I read your book and I thought, oh, I share so many of these assumptions about Jews without realising that they are racist assumptions. And I now realise, and this is what he said, uh, that, that anti-Semitism is the racism that sneaks past you. Yeah. And, and that is key to what I'm doing is to say, look, you know, you may not even realise that you're, you're holding ideas about Jews that you probably don't even think are negative, like the notion that Jews are rich. I've heard people say, but that's a good thing. And it's unfortunately not a good thing, the notion that Jews are rich because it's associated historically with Jews' houses being burned down. I think that's one of the reasons why the book is so important because it makes very, very visible 
that kind of sense of the anti-Semitism, the things that we don't notice at all. And I certainly learnt loads and loads reading it. You make all these points very clearly and very brilliantly, but then you don't necessarily propose an answer to this because mm. what is the answer to this? Yeah. Um, you've talked about in your documentary of the same name about sort of donning the Mr. Jew mantle. What right. does that, did that in itself feel like an act of bravery? No, I don't think so. And I didn't really necessarily know that was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I, I try to not don it as often as I used to. To some extent as well, that the things that happen that are Jews don't county are on a loop. So the Diane Abbott letter is very similar mm. to the Whoopi Goldberg thing in terms of like not understanding or, or refusing to accept uh, that there are different types of racism. And I, I don't want to just repeat myself, which is what I have to do mm. uh, to make that point. Um, there, like one thing, which I thought was like on the nursery slopes of what I was thinking, but I, it's become clear to me that it's not, is to make it clear that anti-Semitism is racism and not religious intolerance. Mm. And I could, to be honest, be on Twitter all the time trying to make that clear. The relevant thing is that Jews throughout history have been racialized by majority cultures who have decided that they are an inferior race, whether or not they are actually a race in the way that other races can be seen to be specifically a race. It doesn't matter. And that's what racism is, because all racism is a construct. So... That has to be explained to people who, at some level, just want to shoot you down. Partly because they want to shoot you down, because people like to do that. But also, I think people can't be bothered. It's, there's a slight sense with anti-Semitism. It's like, oh, look, we're already mm. doing all this anti-racist stuff. And, you know, it's a big deal. And it drags on our lives that we have to think about it. I can't be fucked why? to include... Why is that, though? Why, why do people say, I can't be bothered with that? I think partly it's... It's anti-Semitism. Yeah, it's, it's partly a refusal to see Jews as as like other minorities mm. because they seem different, they seem white. Images in our culture perpetuate the idea of the privileged Jew. So, And we're very obsessed with the idea that vulnerability you know, is primarily about economics, whereas, of course, it isn't just about economics because you can get you know, killed, uh, whatever your income bracket, um, and you can get abused, whatever your income bracket. And the other might be, and I don't really know what, if this is true, might be just because people, yeah, you know, they we are undergoing what I call the great correction, which I think on the whole is a good thing, whereby we're now much more aware of racism and aware of the representation and inclusion of other minorities than we were. And it might be the case that Jews being left out of that is partly to do with it being exhausting to try and make sure that everyone is included and represented. It's just quite hard to do that. The impulse to stand up and talk about your life and reveal yeah. things and your and things about your family, which yeah. some people would consider sort of very, very private yeah. or very, very secret. And you made a stand-up show about your parents' relationship. Yeah. Where does that need to talk about what, you know, what we might call your private life come from? So that I don't see as brave. I mean, I'm on a Bravery podcast. I'm constantly saying this isn't brave. But people did say that about that as well. So My Family, Not the Sitcom, which was a show I did, in the West End and various other places was about my parents and the sort of bravery that I got people saying this is brave was yeah kind of the same thing but it's slightly different in terms of the revelation so one revelation was about my mum my mother's sex life so my mum who was dead by the time I did that show she 
had a very long-term affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman mm. and became obsessed with golf and in fact turned our lives over to golf because our house we didn't have much money but our house was unbelievably covered in golfing memorabilia she started a golfing memorabilia business for about 30 years like she's like covered in golfing badges and blah, blah. And this was all like obviously related to this golfing guy who she'd met and yet somehow or other my dad failed to notice it and it's funny it's funny how brazen my mum was how proud she was at some level of her affair with the golfing memorabilia guy separately to that in that show I talked about my father's dementia and that was more straightforwardly I guess I also made a film uh, called The Trouble With Dad about my dad's dementia my dad had something called Pick's disease, which tends to involve the person becoming very extremely aggressive and obscene and impatient and stuff like that. And as I think I said at the time, that when I the doctor told me that, that that's what it would involve, I said, sorry, does he have a disease or who just met him? Because my father was always <laughs> entirely like, like that. But people did talk, particularly, I guess, with the dementia thing, people did say, oh, you know, that's really liberating and brave of you to sort of come out and talk about living with that with your dad and not being silent about it i mean that really doesn't feel brave to me at all that feels to me like the opposite it's like it's really really difficult to relate and engage and to deal with the fact that this person who is a huge figure in your life is has got dementia so what can i do i can can only talk about it i happen to have a platform i happen to do comedy Mm -hmm. so the, the easiest way of processing that is to do that, right? It would never occur to me not to talk about it. It turns out, as a sort of side effect of that, that many people who come to that show see what I'm doing as combating shame. That that's what I'm doing, combating silence, combating shame. And, you know, the people who like that show would say to me, oh, it makes me feel less alone. And I wouldn't be able to talk about it like this. And I am ashamed about my yeah. blah, blah, blah. And, and, then, and I feel like I... And so that's interesting, but I really wouldn't have thought about it like that. But that thing that then enables people to kind of shed their own shame about, you know, whether it may be a parent's illness or something to do with the marriage or who they are inside them is a, a incredible gift to give to other people as well, isn't it? I'm really interested by your mother, actually, and what she was doing in the kind of very, very open affair that she was having. And your descriptions of her covered in golf badges are actually very, very funny yeah. as well. And you've spoken about her leaving copies of her love letters yeah. all over the place yeah. so that you were all very aware of what was yeah. going on. Do you think your mother, in a way, I'm interested as to whether she kind of gave you something, this sort of desire for self-confession, whether it comes Mm. from her in some way? Well, it comes from her, but also in reaction against her. So, yeah, the openness, the slightly mad openness, probably does come from my mother, although I think the key to my mother was that she was quite performative. She was quite a show-off on some level. And I think she was, in, in quite a 1970s way, quite proud of her affair, thought it was glamorous. And what you need to remember about my mother is that she was born in Nazi Germany. Mm. And had she, although she wouldn't have remembered this, but had the Nazis not taken over Germany, she would have had an incredibly glamorous life because they were wealthy in 1933. They owned a brick factory. They were big figures my grandparents in this place Königsberg which was kind of a quite a bohemian university town in Prussia she would have probably married 
I don't know, a semi-aristocratic or very rich German guy and had a massive... Essentially married my dad, who was like a Welsh working-class bloke, lived in a lower-middle-class house, incredibly mundane, 1970s Cricklewood, and was bored, I think, a lot of the time. And I think this guy, who she found, David White, mm -hmm. uh, was the nearest thing she could get to the German prince that she never had. And I think she wanted to tell people, therefore. She was very keen on telling people. What is different, what is reactive against my mum, is that my mum was someone who was not very self-aware. I don't believe, for example, and I'm writing a book at this moment, that my mum ever really liked golf. Right. right? <laughs> but I don't think she would have known that about herself because it would have become such an obsession with her to prove, I don't know, that she was a golf fanatic, to say something to this guy and also to create an identity for herself that it would have been impossible for her. So she ended up watching loads of golf. So my point is I am obsessed with authenticity yeah. and about self-authenticity and I think my mother wasn't. I think she was obsessed much more with personas that she just adopted, thought they were who she was. Like towards the end of her life, my mum became incredibly Jewish, which is again, not something. I mean, we were very Jewish, but in a very mixed up way. My dad was an atheist and blah, blah, blah. At the end of her life, suddenly she's a big mucker in the synagogue and doing these big caddishes every Friday. And again, that was a way of which my mother thought, oh, you know, I don't think she thought this consciously, but she had to have a thing. And the thing is, I don't think like that. I try and think, like, who am I and just express who I actually am. But do you think that's also you are partly a product of your times and your mother within different and more difficult circumstances found something which was golf? And does it even essentially really matter whether she enjoyed the golf or not? It became the outlet for, no, I, for, I, how, for her yeah, to so, express herself. So that show and the memoir I'm writing is to some extent a celebration. I'm, it is anywhere a celebration because it's comedy, mm. which is incredibly important in all this. So, you know, I'm writing a memoir which in another person's hands might be a misery memoir because it was mad and it did involve like a broken marriage and, you know, lots and lots of sort of things that were probably bad parenting and neglect and whatever. Uh but it's hilarious, mm. right? I translate it as hilarious. And I also translate it, actually, at some level, as brave. Uh, or at least, I don't think, again, my mum would have known it was brave, but I find it triumphant. I find it in a comic way, given that my mum should have died. That's the point. My mum was someone who was only alive by a tiny sliver. She was born in 1939 in Nazi Germany and smuggled out of Nazi Germany. And comes to England and her father is interned on the Isle of Man and then she grows up in a tiny one room during the war speaking German. I mean, it's unbelievable levels of trauma and mm. damage. Her father, my grandfather, is in and out of mental hospital for the rest of his life with clinical depression, unsurprisingly. And yet she has this radically mad thing that she does you know which is which has a joy to it in my opinion it also has a sadness to it by the way because he clearly didn't really love her the golf guy and my mum was obsessed with him but if you actually read her letters to him they are terribly sad because she so has poured everything into him and golf and whatever and he's not that bothered mm. uh, he's mainly bothered i mean it's all, see, I find all this fucking hilarious as it's sad. He's mainly says to her, yeah, but have you sold that book about Lee Trevino? Because he gives her book of stuff to sell. And if you did, can you make sure you get 15 <laughs> quid for it, not 20? Blah, blah, blah. It's like that. That's how his response is. Right. And she's ultra romantic about it. But all of that has a beauty to it. It has a sad beauty, mm. a poignant beauty, a comedy beauty, but it has a beauty to it. And so that's the point is that I celebrate the damage in the way that I think about it. 
And there is also a bravery in that. And I've I've heard you talking about her funeral where everyone came up to you and said she was so marvellous yeah. and so wonderful yeah. and that you actually wanted to create a portrait of the woman that she really was because we kind of erase a person yeah. when we just say... So that comes back the tr- to the truth thing. And that's probably the best example of it, to be honest, is that all these people were coming up to me at my mum's funeral, most of whom I didn't know, and saying, your mother was wonderful. You're such a wonderful woman. And I wanted to say, did you know her? You know, because maybe she was, but not in the way I think you're Mm. saying. Uh, And truth is in specificity. So I then, almost like that day, decided to do this show. Uh, I had a thing where I had to go through both my brothers, and and say, I'm going to talk about the golf stuff and whatever. And both of them were like, really, like, unhappy about it. But my older brother said, look, I know you're going to do this, aren't you? And I sort of said, yes. And I said, you have to trust me that I think it will come across as an act of love, basically. I didn't really know, but I thought. And then the key is, and you've probably heard me say this, is that when I did the first night at the chocolate factory, where it was first on, I came out and there were loads and loads of people. I did a Q&A afterwards with their hands up and important people, you know, critics from the Guardian, whatever. I said, sorry, I need to find out what my brother thinks, first of all, Ivor Badil, who's a very important figure in my life, by the way. I'm actually writing something about him at the moment because I think it's very, siblings are incredibly important, especially if you have a disordered upbringing. Anyway, I have to know what he thinks. And Ivor said, oh, I loved it. I loved it because it felt like she was in the room. And many people from that moment on said to me, God, I really feel like I knew your mother. So that the, the point is that death erases people. Saying they were wonderful erases them a second time. If you, however, put portrait them as they were, which might include all sorts of things that people think, oh, you shouldn't say that about your dead relative. Oh, God, you've said they had an affair. Oh, God, you said they were blah, blah, blah. You've talked about her erotic poetry which has got references in it to her actual vagina and yet you said this it doesn't matter because what you're doing is saying this is who she actually was and now i have unerased her and that's a really really beautiful thing i suppose when you're writing really really personally whether it's about your brother's or about your wife, who, you know, you've said is very, very, very private as well. How do you kind of counter that with the very, very public life and their desire for their private lives? Yeah, that's quite a difficult one. Well, with my brothers, you know, I'm less bothered because kind of, uh, I don't know, they're my brothers and you have a sort of knockabout relationship with mm. them. But with Ivor and my younger brother, Dan, to some extent, it was literally just thing like, just let me write this and I think you'll feel it's like not horrible, so <laughs> not mean-spirited. And They had you to know, trust you. Yeah, they had mm. to trust me and they both loved it, that show. Um, and I say I'm writing a memoir at the moment that has more stuff in it about my parents, but I'm confident they will like it. With Morwenna, it is quite difficult. Um, it is quite difficult and she has got quite angry at times when I've sort of said stuff that she feels is too revealing. It's, but she knows. She knows, <laughs> she, but I'm she, interested... She's, if, she's bought the tickets. You know, we've been married said, for quite a long time. If she said... If you showed her something, or you said, I'm going to write about something... Okay, so there is a key thing. And she said, like, don't, don't so do the key it, exa- would you still do it? Well, there's a key example in terms of all I'm saying about mm. truth and blah, blah, blah. Which, And I can say this now because she has come out and said it, but our daughter has anorexia. Um, and that was the main thing in our lives. And still is a really big thing in our lives, although she is somewhat better now not better, better, but she is a bit better. But it was like, you know, for years, it, that was the main thing in our lives. Mm. Uh, and Dolly was hospitalised and, you know, and I didn't talk about it publicly. Um, 
for a number of reasons. Uh, but number one is that I didn't feel it. Well, that was my, even though it was my life and incredibly impinging on my life and the biggest thing in filled my sky, I thought this is still not my information to share. It's primarily Dolly's, but also very much more Wenner's. And, and it, it was also just a practical thing, which is, will it help her get better to speak about it? And I didn't think it would. Um, in the end, I did a documentary about social media a couple of years ago, and I just asked Dolly, do you want to be in this? Because at the time, I actually hadn't thought about her talking about eating disorder, but I just needed young people in that documentary because I thought I can't do a documentary about social media and just have people of my own age in it but I kind of don't know any young people except the ones who live in my house so my son just said fuck off I'm not being in one of your stupid films um, and Dolly who is nicer said yes I'll do it and then during that conversation she decided she made the decision to talk about how social media had exacerbated her eating disorder which meant we were going public with her and that was quite a big deal and I think it's been okay I think it's not always been okay. I think it might have set her back as well. Uh, but now she, as I say, she's generally progressing. So my point is, having said all that I've said about like, oh, I can't contain myself, I have to speak about urgent stuff, I didn't speak about that. And I don't know how much I felt the need to. I mean, the other reason was, I guess, I mean, I was doing, you know, in terms of doing comedy, there was no comedy in it. Mm. There was no comedy in it. Like there is comedy in my mum's life and sadness and whatever. And indeed in dementia, there was comedy. There's kind of no comedy in anorexia. It's just grim. So from a very practical point of view, I don't know if I would have thought I could make a show out of this or anything like that. When I wanted to do, you know, it's a serious documentary about social media and without any doubt, social media does exacerbate that as it exacerbates all forms of dysfunctional identity. And so that was useful in terms of, of making that point. You started by saying that much of what you talk about, it doesn't feel brave to talk about it. It just feels like you are you need to talk about it. But then you have just said that with Dolly's illness, there was no comedy. So that in itself is a brave act. I mean, especially, I suppose, on the part of Dolly. Mm. Yeah, no, well, that's true. It's very complex, that, because... So anorexia is, as I say is primarily, I think, a disease of identity. It's like young people, mainly young girls, but obviously not just girls, who are desperate for identity. It's made worse by social media, which creates a situation where people can broadcast their identity mm -hmm. if they feel they don't have one, which which adolescents have a fixed identity, none. But if they feel that they don't have one, they need one, one place they can look to is illness. Mm. Illness provides identity, especially if it's a sort of semi-glamorous, and I put that very much in inverted commas, illness like anorexia. And so that's why social media makes it worse, because you can suddenly feel I've got this thing that says who I am and whatever. And so all of that, Dolly was trying to make sense of that, and that was brave, but I think her thing was to try and help, to try and help girls who are a bit younger than her and whatever. But yeah, no, it was. Yeah, I agree. It was brave of her. Do you think there's as a kind of public service element of very, very confessional work as well? Because mm. you are helping. She has presumably helped, you know, many, many other girls as well. But with the, you know, multiple different things that you've written and talked about on social media, you're helping other people, liberating other people. Do you see it as a kind of deal of it? I suppose. I guess I don't. I mean, I mean, I'm very, very wary. And 
this might just be itself. I, I'm thinking, is this inauthentic as I say it? Uh, I'm very, very wary of saying anything that might imply that my motivation is public spirited or good, <laughs> that my motivation is good, by which I mean good in terms of morally good. I'm very wary of it. I mean, I, you know, this is a very tired phrase and it tends to be used by people having a go at people on Twitter who might be trying to be good, but I'm very wary of virtue signaling. Uh, not because I think that people can't say that they've done a good thing, but because I think like, I don't feel it. I don't feel that I'm doing this stuff as a public service. I am moved, very moved. Right? Like uh, there was a carer. Uh, I used to do these shows which carers could come for reduced prices at on matinees for um, My Family Not the Sitcom. So there would often be all carers in the audience. And I, in the Q&A afterwards, a guy told me he'd been three times. And and I said, why? And he said, because it makes me feel less alone uh, and because it makes me able to laugh at you know, a situation that I think is not... I find it hard to know how to laugh at it, right? So unquestionably, I am moved by that and I feel better about myself and I think, oh, good. That isn't my motivation. I promise you it's not my motivation. I can't... I would be lying if I thought it was my motivation. Can you think of an instance where you have been required to be brave? Well, in... In the documentary, I went to see Jason Lee, who I performed in blackface yeah. with Jason Lee in fantasy football. And I decided in Jews Don't Count, the documentary that I was going to... Well, actually, he was doing a podcast. I think people don't realise this. He's doing a podcast, and it was good timing from that point of view, in that he launched a podcast. And so there was contact between you know the people running that, our, our show and, and his podcast producers about having me on. And I was undeniably frightened of doing that and had to deal with like the public shame or whatever that goes mm. with doing that and felt quite traumatized afterwards because Jason absolutely in the full thing which you can still watch obviously on social media absolutely doesn't give me a, an easy time with it but I thought that was all appropriate that was all appropriate in terms of like reaching out to him and doing that and I'm glad I did it well, mainly on a human level, because trust me, the people who want to slag me off for doing that absolutely don't accept that that was okay and that mm. sorts it out. <laughs> you know, they absolutely don't. But the important thing is that it meant something to him and it meant something to me in terms of a human bridge built there. Um, and but yes, I mean, it was certainly had to get over mm. <laughs> the fear of that, which is slightly unusual. Most of the time I don't feel fear of going into a situation like that on a completely different level, which we haven't talked about at all. Um, it takes bravery to be a stand-up comic. Yeah, what does that feel like? What does it feel like? Well, that still feels brave to me. Like, like in all this conversation, like me saying, I'm not brave, I'm not brave. I think I am brave just going on stage mm. and trying to make people laugh mm. uh, because every time I do that, I feel deeply nervous and... I feel much more nervous doing that than I do going on stage at a book festival to talk intellectually about Jews don't count. Partly because like being funny is this weird art form, like no other art form. It's more like sport where you know whether or not you've been a success or not. You can do a play, you can do a painting, you can write a piece of music, and you don't really know, whereas you totally know every mm. second you're on stage in comedy, whether you're being successful or not and you can fail very spectacularly and that's always frightening i think doing it makes you less frightened so the more you do it 
the more you feel inured to it. And so less frightened, though I'm still nervous. I'm about to do some stand-up in the autumn because, in fact, my three stand-up shows that I've done over the last eight years, including my family, not the sitcom, are being recorded for Sky Arts. So I have to go back on stage mm. and redo them. And that's finding that very daunting and anxiety-creating to think about. As I get older, I think it gets actually harder because I don't do it as often. But also, I think when I was young, although I was definitely nervous and it was frightening and it was brave to do it because I was doing it at the comedy store at midnight and all that stuff, there was a sort of blindness uh, when I was young that just made me do it. Yeah, no, and the sort of fuck it energy yes, of it drive, being a younger person. Yeah, yeah. You know, you said you find doing comedy much more nerve-wracking than going and talking at a book festival or something. Do you think that because... If you don't make people laugh, there would be a higher level of shame associated. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of would be very be shaming, wouldn't it? It seems to be the case. I mean, as I get older, I worry about this too, because I think that as I get older, I worry about dementia. It's something I worry about a lot. And in fact, it takes a certain bravery to say that, I guess, because mm. people don't like to say that. But I do worry about it because articulacy is kind of very key to who I am. But in general... When I'm in a situation where I'm intellectually going to be intellectually challenged, I, I'm not frightened. I'm confident you know about what, my yeah. intellectual ability and I'm confident that I will be able to articulate my position fairly clearly. With comedy, I am confident that I'm going to be able to make an audience laugh, but comedy is more of a gamble always. It's always a gamble. There's all sorts of things that can suddenly make a comedy night go wrong. Obviously heckless, but also just the nature of the room, the night itself. You might just not be completely on it. And there is, yeah, there's definitely a particular type of awful public shame. It hasn't happened to me that often, but it has happened to me of like dying on your ass. And what does that feel like? And how long does it take to get over it? Because it must be so, so unpleasant, that it feeling. Is, it is really unpleasant. Frank Skinner once said, not so much of dying um, on stage, but of getting a bad review, that it's the shame of it is like wearing a wet blanket. Like you've been given a blanket that's sopping to mm. wear and you just have to wait for it to dry out. <laughs> and I think that's very good. Yeah. It, it does feel like that. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no point in, like with a bad gig. Well, actually, I once did get a bit of help for a bad gig. I once died terribly at the comedy store in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Just once, it was just bad. I remember someone at the back shouting, the walls are closing in as I left the stage and thinking, is that God? Or because he's right. Um, and, I, you know, you have to sort of like get your coat and leave the comedy store hoping not to bump into any other comedians who might have seen it. But I, I was leaving and a comedian called Jim Taveray uh, was coming in to do his set. And I just said to him as I left, because yeah, I was I said, it was terrible, terrible, I died on my ass. And he just said, oh, don't worry, you're really great. And that... I remember that very clearly as being like, oh, that felt nice, particularly because comedians quite like it when other comedians die. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, it just feels horrible. When, you know, before you go on stage, are there any things that you do to kind of combat the nerves or to make yourself feel braver, I suppose? Not really. Uh, I don't have any sort of rituals. I sort of try not to get into sort of bad loops of thinking. I, I'm an insomniac. Mm. Um, and often wake up in the middle of the night with a very racing mind uh, and so I have taken to trying breathing techniques to deal with that um, I have an app on my phone which is quite a recent thing that makes a, a high sound and then a low sound to breathe in and out uh, and I mentioned this if anyone's listening because they do have anxiety disorders because mm. I think I can be prone to anxiety despite this sort of comfort just as a thing by the way like I think a lot of people 
see depression and anxiety, both of which I've had, as being about self-hate. Mine really isn't. I like very unself-hating, incredibly comfortable in my own skin. But that doesn't mean I don't have anxiety because actual things happen in my life that give me anxiety. And one of them is doing a gig. I remember when I've been my most anxious was briefly in, in the 2000s when I was doing Bedelia and Skinner Unplanned, which was a live comedy, sh- unscripted comedy show on ITV. And I had young children at the same time. I now think of that as a mad thing to do. That's really hard. It's a totally <laughs> mad thing to do. And I, and I realized now that I was deeply anxious, like all the time, and it made me ill, right? Um, and that is partly why I don't perform as much as I used to, because I just think, like, what the fuck? Because is- the anxiety of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Particularly, like, I mean, that was a madly. It's interesting though because it that it isn't like an innate confidence. You are having to combat something all yeah. the time, every single time you go on stage. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. So anyway, I have occasionally tried breathing. I listen to music that helps a bit. I don't know. Really, what do you get anxious about in the middle of the night? You talk about being a very confident person, but if you're if you're an insomniac, there is something inherently anxious inside mm. you that is stopping your piece of sleep i suppose yeah death death without any doubt mm-hmm. uh mortality without any doubt if you've read the god desire mm-hmm. you'll know that it's really a book about death yeah um, and a yeah mortality and aging dementia those are all very sort of me but i think those things are all involve other people so like when i talk about mortality i don't just mean my mortality i mean you know loved ones mortality and all the rest of it yeah mainly those things and sometimes a formless anxiety i have to say uh, I think I have a sort of hormonal, I'm going to say, thing where I wake up just at three or four in the morning and my brain is just unbelievably fast, but not in a useful way. Just like often tunes and things like that, just knocking around in my head and gibberish in my head and I can't control it. And that's anxiety creating. Who's the bravest person you know? I sort of want to say Morwenna, weirdly. It might just be because I want to say something nice about her, but Morwenna is like my dad died when she was six and she was just told by her mum, oh dad died last night and then she had because it was the 60s and they didn't know about like bereavement counseling was just sent off to school when no one believed her that her dad had died no one believed her that 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 had happened they just thought she was lying for attention (laughs) you know um and anyway morwenna through all that went to cambridge which no one had done from her sort of area of flushing in Cornwall before and everyone told her she couldn't do it and would never get there and became a success and then was on Saturday. She's the only British person yeah. ever to be a cast member of Saturday Night Live, which people don't know about her, you know. And unlike me, she's not interested in telling people about herself and her extraordinary achievements, which I find quite brave in itself. <laughs> so what so, she's doing is a, is an actual act of bravery because for you it isn't, you know, yeah. start off by saying it isn't bravery, you you just have to do it. For her, it is actually I think living with bravery. me is quite brave. I do, <laughs> I honestly think that. I do think living with me is quite brave because I'm not that easy to live with. I mean, I'm sort of easy at one level because I am deeply honest and that's quite useful, I think, in a relationship. But I'm also me and I know that's quite tiring. Do you think that we get braver? You know, life is hard and it goes on being harder and harder and more interesting as far as I can see. But do you think that we get braver as we get older just simply through that experience of multiple challenges? I don't know. I mean, I think, as I say, when you're young, possibly in a slightly blind, driven way, you're quite, I was braver I think I you know if someone said to me now at this age you have to start again as a stand-up and it involves going on stage at the comedy store at three o'clock in the morning and no one knows who you are and people will have fights before you go on and isn't that that's just weariness isn't it well also terror also terror I think right 
And it didn't occur to me to be terrified, or not, at least not terrified enough, that I wouldn't do it mm. at the time. So I think, but the exhaustion is important because I think I agree with you that, you know, sort of wisdom and knowing what your challenges are can lead you into sort of a more focused type of bravery. But at the same time, exhaustion makes you think, I can't be fucked. Yeah. <laughs> I can't be fucked with this thing that and will be boredom, quite difficult. Perhaps. And yeah, I think so. I don't know. Although here's the thing, in terms of the not alone thing, it relate to what you're talking about, I think about what you write about. Uh, Louis Theroux is doing a new series of himself podcast interviews or whatever. Slightly annoys me that he hasn't asked me, but you know that's typical. I had to say that, by the way. Like that's like a vulgar thing to say, and won't help. He won't invite me on because I've said that, but I sort of have to express it. But anyway, he was interviewing Nick Cave, and he put it on Twitter. And Nick Cave, who has had terrible things happen to him, yeah. two children die, I believe, uh, was talking primarily about how disgusting and revolting we are as human beings, and how what he likes is people who say that who will give examples in their art of the true disgusting revoltingness of humanity and i do think we are more and more and more and more and this relates a bit to the young and old thing you're talking about it's supposed to be a generational thing moving social media is a main motor of this to a thing whereby we don't accept the truth of our yeah. disgustingness yeah <laughs> right we we try and create a refined you know cultured curated idea of what humanity is and it's incredibly wrong for art and self-expression and whatever and you do have to be quite brave to say no 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 we're we're not like this yeah i mean one example it's really important one example so important. is is this book i might write and i guess this is quite interesting because i do have a little bit of thinking like oh i can't want to write that but i am a bit worried at Bushbelt, which i said i wasn't worried about but i'm thinking about writing my next non-fiction book and calling it The Male Gaze. And I'm thinking about writing that because, well, because Catelyn Moran has written a book yeah. about men recently mm. and it, and she's pointed out that men aren't writing about men. And I think men aren't writing about men because they're frightened, right? Frightened to be honest about mm. what it means to be a man. Mm. And The Male Gaze is an interesting thing about that because it's a sort of feminist concept about women being subject and oppressed mm. by the male gaze. And I agree with that. But it's interesting that it's led to a silence, which is what is it like to actually be the possessor of a male gaze? And is that it, does that create its own form of oppression? And I think it's difficult to write about that because men are considered as having the power. And so therefore, somehow it's not their right to write about that and it will seem like, again, a bit like with the Jew thing, yeah, whining exactly. and blah, 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 and defensive and all the rest of it. And I guess the reason why I'm slightly not sure about writing it is I think, well, with Jews don't count. I did get pushback. I still get pushback. But Jewish people in general are unbelievably grateful that I wrote it. If I write the male gaze, men will not be grateful about it. <laughs> men will say, you shouldn't have written this. And it's too honest. And I wish you hadn't. And whatever. And But that's what I mean, is that like... Well, that's why it's necessary to write it, though, as well, Just as an example, it? the way that men actually are mm. is like being erased. Mm. Because people don't want to think that men are like that. And there are men who collude with that and whatever. And I kind of think like when Nick Cave says we are disgust... I mean, women are as well. Uh, but I can't really speak about that. But I just think human beings are. Mm. But... People are so frightened of being trolled or whatever, virtuously for being not a good person, then you end up with this thing of like mm. people all pretending to be good, which we're not. Mm. Will you tell me about your talisman, please? Yes. So, so you told me about this, and I'm going to be honest because yeah. I have to be. It's a talisman implies to me something that you wear or have with you at all times as a kind of keepsake or a way of making you deal with difficult situations. Mm -hmm. I don't have one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but... 
I thought about it and I thought I do have things around me mm. that speak of bravery and you're in my office and I brought all sorts of stuff from home to this office that I now work in uh, and over there is a picture of my grandparents. Um, uh, my grandparents are, their names were Ernst and Otti Fabian and the thing I think is brave about this and it's a small thing, although it points to a very large thing, is that they were walking here in Berlin, I think it is. Well, it might be Königsberg, but for some reason I think it's Berlin. I can't remember why. But in Germany, in about 1936. So after the... Actually, no, they haven't got yellow stars on, so I think it might be 1935. Yeah. At the start, this is sort of like at the start of the Nazi era. And their lives are about to be completely destroyed. I mean, totally, totally destroyed. And mo most of their families are about to be murdered. Uh, and they know this at some level. I mean, obviously they don't. But I mean, they, they have must have incredible intimation of disaster. But they're both smiling in this picture. And they're just smiling because a photo is being taken of them. But at some level, those smiles, particularly my grandma's, feel very real. right? And so when I look at this, obviously with the benefit of hindsight that smiling looks really brave. Yeah. You know, the, the, just the sort of hope and joy and refusal to be miserable in the face of, you know, what's going to happen to them feels to me really, really brave and just human. Yeah. So I'm going to say this. No, absolutely. That's com I mean, it's an absolute definition of bravery and yeah. really, really incredibly kind of beautiful and awe-inspiring way. Um, thank you very, very much for sharing that. Just to finish, for anybody listening to this who is, you know, facing something or wants to feel braver, I suppose, what advice, David, would you offer to them about how to be braver in the way that you live? Well, so I have spent a lot of this saying I'm not brave, I'm just honest, I just have to need to say stuff. But I guess the way I would translate that if I was giving advice, which I'm not particularly good at, I don't think, uh, because I feel so personal in everything I do. It's all about me and how I have to express myself. But the truth is that in being personal, I do know something. The more specific I am about who I am, the more it will actually chime with people out there. And so what I think I do have is a sort of militant lack of shame. Uh, I don't think it comes from any ideology or any sort of front of the head thing. It just comes from the way I am. But it, it, it translates as a militant lack of shame. It seems to me that types of bravery in modern world, which is not the same as going to war, right? Um, like types of bravery in modern world are about combating shame, particularly now that we have built yeah. ourselves a technological shaming machine uh, that affects everyone. And we carry right? everywhere. We carry it everywhere, the ability to be constantly shamed. Mm. Uh, so if you are able to refuse shame about whatever it is that you need to overcome, and obviously not everything you need to overcome involves shame, although it does, you know, even illness, as I said earlier, seems to carry shame for mm. some people. Like they don't want to admit that they're ill. Uh, they don't want to admit that they fail. They don't want to admit their relationships have gone wrong or that there are problems or whatever, any of that stuff. What are they frightened of? Shame. It seems to be more of a thing, mm. doesn't it, than sort mm. of physical mm. fear or whatever. Even as we spoke earlier, like what are you frightened of dying on stage? Shame. Because mm. there's no actual you know, physical danger that you're in as, mm. no, as long as no one's throwing any bottles. So I would say that. I would say in the way that I live, it seems to involve 
to some extent a militant lack of shame and that might be a, a way of being brave there is actually one more thing i wanted to ask you about which is alexandra told me that you were very scared of frogs yeah that's not completely true uh, <laughs> i know why she said that i'm primarily scared of spiders, spiders. Uh, in terms of but i had a thing with frogs that she is right about which is just it was just a brief period in my life uh, so our cat mine and frank's cat chairman meow still the best name ever for a cat um used to bring in frogs for some reason we were near the heath and she got she the cat got like braver and braver and braver with that because <laughs> they got bigger and bigger right and it got to a point where i i started to become quite frightened of her bringing in frogs because they were pretty big and sort of toad like and i was worried like is this going to leap on me when i'm asleep <laughs> or whatever and it did develop into a bit of a phobia and then in a brilliant moment frank who is incredibly funny but also much more of a practical joker than me uh, I came back to my house, my flat, and in my bedroom, I went in and I saw this like really odd-looking bright green frog. And I, and I sort of associated that in my mind, I think, with poison, I think, on my floor. And I thought, oh, fuck, the chairman, that's what we called it, brought in one, a really weird frog. I didn't even look at it properly. And I said to Frank, who was not frightened at all, hadn't got this phobia, can you just go and sort out that frog right by which i meant put a bin over it and then we'll sort it out mm. later just i can't i don't really get, want to get near it he went yeah 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 and he suddenly came out of my like two seconds later came out of my bedroom going, and he had the frog in his mouth oh like the frog God. had leapt in his mouth it was a toy frog <laughs> oh, right. it was a joke the whole thing was he had got he knew oh dave's got this phobia about frogs i'm gonna put it there and, and he could not have imagined it would work so well he just thought I'd get a shock and then realise it was a toy. But once I said, can you sort out that frog? He decided to put it in his mouth and come out of the room doing that. So I think that's what Alexander was referring to. Okay, cool. David Badil, thank you very, very much indeed. My pleasure. It was really, really lovely to do. Thank you. I started recording this podcast um, a few weeks before we started packing up our house to leave where we live right now, which is deep in the heart of the Oxfordshire countryside, and moved to Washington, D.C. We're going there with three of our younger children, um, and my two eldest children are staying at university in England. My husband's been working there for a while, so we're going to go and join him for a couple of years. It's been very hard. I found it very hard leaving our home and leaving the place that I really love. Um, it's really made me think about the fact that you know, the home, the environment, the friendships that we build take time and kind of packing up boxes and dismantling my home has been a really emotional process, as has saying goodbye to lots of incredibly dear friends, even though I'll know that I'll see them in another couple of years. Um, it's also made me think about the kind of tiny acts of bravery that we all have to carry out all the time. Bravery isn't necessarily a huge act, though it might be that too, but it might also just be small things that we do on a daily basis. And I truly do believe that the more we do it, the more we do it, the more we do it, and the better we get at it. And when we face the stuff that's difficult for us, the more exciting and fun and rich our lives are. Yesterday I was with my daughter and we were walking through a field. She's 10 years old and it was a cow field. There was full of cows because, as I said, we live in the countryside. She is actually terrified of cows and she was holding my hand and really squeezing my hand and I could hear her little voice getting more and more scared. And I was saying to her, come on, Evangeline, we can do this, we can do this. The cows were all surrounding us. I knew that they weren't going to do anything wild or dangerous, but she didn't. 
uh, however much I reassured her. But there was something in walking across that field that felt quite important. Um, she was really properly scared by the cows and I wanted her to walk. I didn't want to go back on our walk. I wanted her to keep walking so that she could kind of face that fear. And she did. She's a bit less scared of cows than she was. A tiny act of bravery, which, yeah, feels important. I know there are many, many, much bigger things that we have to do. I have had a life which has been marked with a lot of traumatic loss from when I was an adolescent. And one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I wanted to look at the way kind of facing traumatic loss repeatedly throughout my life has, I think, enabled me to live a richer, more colourful, more expansive life at the same time that I carry with me really intense sadness and grief. But that in a way, the more grief and the more sadness and the more loss there is, the more expansion and poetry and beauty there is. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast and have conversations with different people about bravery. We're almost halfway through the series and it's been incredibly interesting. I am currently totally surrounded by packing boxes, newspaper for wrapping things up, chaos, stuff to go to the charity shop, piles of rubbish. Yeah, it's pretty pretty chaotic. And when I next record this, I'll actually not be standing in a field as I am now, but I will be in Washington, D.C. And I really hope that you will come along with me and join this conversation. Thank you for listening. I'm Clover Stroud, and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.